Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Addison Tweedy. Addison is a full-time missionary working to reach kids on college campuses with the gospel. Addison has pioneered new outreaches around the world in Poland, Peru, South Africa, Austria, Germany, Hungary, Brazil, and Colombia. Addison is a comedian and performed in front of live audiences for many years. He is also the national director for the God Is Not Dead events, working closely with Dr. Rice Brooks. In this conversation, we talk about his outreach on college campuses and his approach to reaching the lost in the post-Christian world. Addison and I discuss specifically how Bitcoin can be used for evangelism, and of course, we talk about using Bitcoin in missions. This is a fascinating and fun conversation. I know you will enjoy it. Thank you to all of you who faithfully listen to the show. On various episodes, I've interviewed pastors and missionaries. Please consider donating to their ministries. I've included their lightning or Bitcoin addresses in the show notes. Thanks so much. As many of you know, I've put together a study guide, Bitcoin for Churches, and we've had a tremendous response with our seminar. If you have a church that you would like to orange pill or a Christian organization, I'm here to help. Please contact me to discuss scheduling a seminar for your organization. In the show notes, you'll find a link with a brief outline of the Bitcoin for Churches study guide. Thank you. Before we jump into the show, I want to make you aware of Bitcoin Lake. Bitcoin Lake is a project I'm starting in Panajachel, Guatemala on Lake Atitlan. I'm hoping we can model Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. I need your help and I want this to be a Bitcoin community project. Please check out the project on Twitter at Lake Bitcoin. The name Bitcoin Lake is backwards on Twitter at Lake Bitcoin. And I will leave links in the show notes. Please consider being a part of this today. Thank you. Hey, Addison, it's it's great to have you here today. Thanks so much for your time. I'm, I'm super excited to, to chat with you. We've had a kind of nice uh, interactions on Twitter and kind of researching a little bit about you, was intrigued with what you do and wanted to have you on the show. So for the audience sake, if you could just kind of introduce yourself and tell us what you do and, you know, kind of the history of, of where you are right now. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Patrick, for uh, for having me on today. Yeah, my name is Addison Tweedy, and I am a missionary. I currently work with Every Nation. I kind of they're based out of Brentwood, uh, Tennessee, right here. Where I live in Nashville, Nashville area. Um, but I've been doing that for 26 years. Uh, I got saved on the college campus at Florida State University uh, years ago, and gave my life to the gospel at that very moment. I've been doing that for a quarter of a, a century now, and uh, you know. I guess I've lived, I've lived here. I've lived, um, gosh, California, Arizona, Tennessee, Florida. I lived over in Innsbruck, Austria, lived in Budapest, Hungary, just everywhere going to plant churches and campus ministries so that more people will hear, hear the gospel. Um, I did comedy early on. I don't know if I even told you that. No. Yeah. I did comedy for 20 years. Uh, I had a CD out, uh, live DVD. I haven't done it in five years since I went to grad school, but uh, yeah, that, that used to be part of my ministry, a way to reach people doing, telling jokes and whatnot. Are you funny? So, hey, well, <laughs> I've been paid to, <laughs> paid to do it. So. <laughs> that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, that's really cool, Addison. We're, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but I mean, just in in your experience, how have you seen ministry and outreach change in those 26 years? That's a great question. So 
just I'll go ahead and date myself. I, I graduated college in 95. Uh, I, I was able to squeeze four years of college into six years. So I did, I did it in five. <laughs> okay. So I, I actually, I actually uh, was a manager for the football team there. I worked for coach Bobby Bowden, great man of God. He recruited me to come in there to help uh, minister to the athletes. So I got a national championship ring for 93 and mm. great, great revival happened there. And kind of out of that revival, we began to plan our ministry in church there. But um, to kind of go back to your question, it was, I remember then there used to be some of the guys that had discipled me, they had a thing called the two question test back in the day. And you would just ask people, Hey, you know, are you going to heaven? Why? And it was like a real simple way because you had a basic Christian worldview yeah. and you could go on campus and you could convict people of sin and they'd say, yeah, I'm not doing what I should be doing. And they would kind of feel guilty and kind of go do your Bible study, but that's changed. And in the time I've seen now, even more and more, you see people coming in with with no biblical understanding whatsoever, no church back. I've never been to church. Uh, I don't know that. And you're even seeing this on the HBCUs, historically black college universities. So I've ministered at Florida A and M, uh, Tennessee State up here. So used to even in that community, you still had a little bit of like the praying grandma, and you know maybe maybe that was a little bit behind the curve. Even there on those campuses now, you're seeing a great need for apologetics and these things because. Uh, those communities now too are, are are being raised like why should I even believe in God? You know, does God even exist? So you're having to kind of go back further and do uh, more preliminary questions. You know, is there a God? Why do you not believe in God? How do you account for morality? You have, you're having to go back to some more um, basic questions, which. I had to do what I lived in Europe when I was a missionary over there because they were more post-Christian than we were. I felt like when I went to Europe and I came back, it was like I went to the future. Mm. And I was able to kind of see where we we're going because when I lived there, they used to have these credit cards with little chips in them, which now everybody uses credit cards with chips. They had the grocery carts with the we put the money in it, you know, and uh, to do that now, they do that here with like an Aldi. They had uh, the laser beams in parking garages that told you how many cars. I saw so many things in the future that now are coming here, the fashion with the white sneakers and all the stuff. So it kind of gave me some insight, even Christianity wise, where we were in a post-Christian culture to come back and now minister in this context. And it kind of helped me to kind of see where the future was going. Almost like Rescue would say to don't skate to the puck, but skate where the puck is going. So I could start skating evangelistically where uh, these students are going today. Addison, you that term post-Christian um, define for maybe some of our listeners kind of define what that that means. Uh, you know, I, I would define it this way, where in a Christian culture, it's generally accepted that you'd have to say be a Christian to run for political office or to, to have acceptable Christian uh, morals or norms in order to be accepted. There was a time maybe when I was a kid where it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this kid had a baby out of wedlock or don't even talk about this person that has this alternative lifestyle or this president better say a prayer or I'm not going to vote for him. And now it's gotten to the point where we've had people that didn't necessarily have a strong faith or had an alter, a different faith that could run for office. Uh, you're seeing, you know, alternative lifestyles that are just baked into the Supreme Court Constitution, you know, now that uh, or Supreme Court ruling rather that th- these things are approved. So you're kind of beyond like the traditional values of traditional marriage or these these certain uh, Judeo-Christian worldview institutions that people in society have, quote, progressed beyond. And so that's how we define post-Christian. And now you have what they call the rise of the nuns. So you had people that were a Christian in one category, people that were not Christian, like atheists in another category. And in the middle, you had all the people that because the societal pressure was more to be Christian, that they would lean towards identifying, saying that you were in the military, I was too, I did eight years in Navy Reserve, 
but you would check like, what are you? Oh, I'm Methodist. I'm Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. You would say you were some kind of Christian, uh, even just because you know you're American and Jesus was American, so you felt like I guess I'm I guess I'm Christian. But what once as soon as you know, see, I'm making you laugh now. See, there it is. Did, is that, <laughs> did, did did Jesus wear a trucker hat? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so, you know, the, the idea that I think once once it's more socially acceptable to identify with it, to be a Christian, that's the Christian culture. But as soon as that broke in the last decade, where you didn't necessarily have to identify that way, you saw, boom, you saw that middle where people would feel obligated to kind of go to church, kind of tick a, tick a box off or to feel no, no, my mom used to say, no self-respecting person would leave their car in the driveway on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And it was just that it was that general culture in her day that you you just went to church. And now people, especially with the pandemic, it's like, hey, I don't have to go to church. The bolt of lightning hasn't struck me. So I'm good. I don't, okay. I'll yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever go back. And so churches are, you know, most churches now they're talking about being down at 50 percent of their original uh, attendance before the pandemic that it may never recover at that level because you basically kind of shook out that messy middle, the people that were identifying. So the, the number of Christians hasn't changed you know, per se, but it's, it's that middle that you thought you had a lot more Christians in America than you did, which if you looked at the statistics, you knew it was wrong. If 85% of people believe in God, and yet yeah. you also have high numbers of people that believe in abortion or always lead to heaven or whatever else is out there. You realize there's very few that really believe it's just kind of that messy middle of people that kind of dabble and are unsure. But now that the, the, in a post-Christian culture, that the middle collapsed and now there's more of a chasm in between and there's a, and there's a definite line. So now you really know believers and non-believers and you're able to have more honest and open conversations with people about uh, their beliefs. Interesting. So you, a couple of things you mentioned, um, you've noticed in the last decade, um, you kind of put that as kind of the defining point. And what do you think's happened in the last decade? Do you think it was a, a normal progression? I mean, obviously, we were, you know, I'm a big student of Francis Schaeffer. And, and you know, he was writing about post-Christian society in the 80s. So he saw it coming. But obviously, it was going to be inevitable. But do you think something happened within the last decade that caused this? Or do you think that we just got here because that's where we were going to go? And so that's the first question. And then the second question is the the collapse of the middle. I mean, I view that as a good thing. Um, Are you seeing or do you think something different? Are are pastors thinking something different in, in that respect? Yeah. So, um, the first question was, um, the decade, you know, the past decade, decade. did something precipitate this or do you think this was just how we were going to get here anyway? Well, I think it, I think it was a myriad of of factors. Like a lot of things, uh, it's always hard to pin down. We just kind of pick a pivotal event to try to say, Oh, this was the moment. Uh, It's my understanding that, Obviously, I mean, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, Francis Schaeffer, all of guys were pointing towards where the ideas in academia were going to logically conclude in the future. And sometimes you read these guys now, like I follow G.K. Chesterton. I know he's dead, but he has a Twitter account, apparently, from the grave. And it's funny to watch him pull these quotes out of his books 100 years ago. And you're like, man, is this guy living today? So, I mean, people can kind of see where things are going to go. And it may seem radical, but then you, when you get there, you realize this is true. But I think one of the big things that kind of tipped the scale uh, was 9-11 when you had the, the uh, Twin Towers go down, the terrorism attacks, that then that emboldened a lot of what they called new atheists. You always had atheists around that just didn't believe. But then you had the new atheist, which was a different brand of atheism. It was more brazen and in your face. It was more combative, confrontive, and willing to 
you know, come out with books like the God delusion or, uh, you know, blatantly saying that, you know, Christianity was not just false or, but it was evil, you know, that was bad for society. It was a poison. And so when those kind of things begin to happen, and then you begin to try to diminish it in the public sphere that, Hey, you keep that private, you keep that to yourself. This isn't public truth. Then uh, I think that's where that middle kind of collapsed. Uh, You know, I would say that the turn of the new millennium. And why 9-11? Well, 9-11, I think for guys like Christopher Hitchens, you know, he was making the association that it was religion that caused terrorism. And even though it was a stretch and it was, you know, sure, uh, yeah. it was not all religions and whatnot, that was kind of emboldening him to begin to attack, you know, where was God in this moment and see, you know, Christianity is a religion of terrorism and just making these broad accusations and things. And then a series of books happened with the four horsemen, you know, uh, was it Daniel Dennett and uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, this guy Sam Harris. So you had that kind of several authors and speakers kind of making the circuit and it began real popular, this new atheism movement, and their YouTube videos. And of course, YouTube was getting, I forget when YouTube came out, but it kind of hit a, an inflection point in the uh, 2000s there in, their, in that early, the first decade, uh, where that's where, I mean, it's not like the atheists have been going out starting atheism churches, but through YouTube and the internet, people are able to search YouTube videos, fall down that rabbit hole and come out and be an atheist on the other side. And that's what's happened to a lot of young people. They're at home in a Christian environment and they're watching YouTube videos and they get to college and they say, you know what? I don't know if I believe this anymore. They get that, you know, those, those doubts planted in their mind to those videos. So what's the, I mean, I mean, that's, that I, I believe that that sounds really true. I mean, is that a failure of parenting? Is it a failure of the churches not to be preaching uh, the truth? Um or is that just the human heart when it's exposed to that, it's going to doubt and, and go down that, 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 that rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, I think somewhere I would, I would always think it back to the parenting. I think that's where the, the onus is on us as parents to steward that, steward that relationship with our, with our children. You know, you can point to other factors in society that cause us to work and be busy and this and that, and the internet in the home. But ultimately we've got to create an environment where we're teaching our kids to faith and not just teaching them the faith, but teaching them the counter arguments. When you get to school, here's what your professor is going to say. Here's what the news says. What do you say about that? You know, applying the scripture to daily life, sitting around the dinner table, taking a news article or a story and saying, is there any biblical application to this? You know, what do you think about this issue that happened at your school? And making all of those, as Deuteronomy 6 talked about, when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you eat, when you sleep, talking about those things of God. So that, that is the research I've seen from Barna. That's how the faith gets passed on is those little moments where the kids yeah. see you praying, they see you witnessing, they see you you know, serving, not just every week you go to church and I hope that does it for you and I'll go off and live the rest of your life. That segmentation, it kind of creates a cognitive dissonance. But if they see you implementing it daily life, that helps. So there's a, an apologist, Natasha Crane has a great blog about, you know, if your kids don't ask you questions, that's a, that's a problem. Because basically every kid should be curious and ask you a question, you know, where did, where did Cain get his wife or why did Adam sin? And you have these tough questions you want to wrestle with. Well, if you go, I don't know, just shut up and believe. If you dismiss them, you know, you go to church and they go, Hey, don't, don't question what we're teaching. Just don't deal with that. They, the kids disengage and they begin to look on YouTube or somewhere else and they will go down 
a different a different path. But you as a parent have to be able to say, you know, either I don't know, that's a good question. Let's let's research it together and find out. Or you have to begin to ask the questions and show, well, here's what this person would say, and here would be our answer to that. You know, how do you see that? And helping them to start thinking themselves and taking the faith in uh, as their own. Because again, if, if they're if they're not asking questions of you, number one, that means that they don't they don't trust you. They're mm-hmm. they're uh, they're getting the answer somewhere else. Or number two, they they're just they blindly accepted what you're teaching, and they're not really making it their own because they're just going okay, and they just take it until they get to college, and the professor challenges it. And now suddenly they're shaken because maybe they had some some weird kind of view like Bart Ehrman had where he just thought the Bible dropped from heaven. And then all of a sudden he gets to textual criticism class and he realizes, well, it was a messier process. And now it shakes his faith because he was too dogmatic about the process of inspiration. Interesting that, uh, you know, uh, when I was growing up, so I, I graduated uh, college in 90 and but uh, I became a believer in high school. And fortunately, I had believers around me that were very solidly grounded in apologetics and they taught me apologetics and I, I read a bunch. So but in my adulthood, I don't think I've ever been to other than Bible churches where you're you're doing exposition, what, uh, you know, Expositional preaching. Yes. Expository expository preaching. Thank you. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a Bible study or a Bible class to teach fundamentals of apologetics. And maybe if there have been some along the way, I didn't take them because I figured I knew it already anyway. But I mean, do you think that's a, a missing link within the body today that there's not enough basic apologetics being taught? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, because you it's easy to happen. Like you get in the church and you just assume that this is my crowd. I'm preaching to the choir. So you begin to speak in a way and say things that you can get away with, mm-hmm. with a friendly crowd. That's why I love doing campus ministry. Cause you're on the campus, you're preaching. You're, you're, you're what you say is going to be challenged by them. Well, what's your source? Where'd you get that from? What's the evidence you have for that? So you're forced to couch things and say things in a way uh, that's going to be more uh, charitable to the opposition and in a way to really present the evidence for it. But when you're not challenged to give that evidence, then you just get lazy and don't do it. So I think you have to, ideally, you would be given apologetics every week in the pulpit and, and not like an apologetic sermon per se, but just the way you teach, you've got to teach things, you know, when you when you share that Christ died on the cross, this isn't some Bible story. I'm not, I'm, I'm telling you a fact of history Okay, that is is more verifiable than any other fact, you know, in the ancient world. And so this isn't like something I'm making up or like my private truth or my, you know, moral things. Somebody said the fact that this man existed in history and died on a cross, Roman cross under Tiberius uh, and Pontius Pilate. That is a fact of history. And so. I'm sharing a public truth, just as I would tell you that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated or that the Hindenburg blew up, you know. And that's interesting because, uh, I, you know, when you talk to atheists and I talk about this friend of mine that that I led to the Lord through my Bitcoin writings and all that. But, you know, when you talk to an atheist, that's that's what they think. They think it's a story. They don't they don't think it of think of it as historical fact. And um, that is so critical um, that that what you just said. So do you. How did the pandemic change ministry for you? And I'm sure it did, but did it change ministry for you? And um, yeah, so how did the pandemic change 
ministry for you on campus? Okay. Uh, well, a couple of things. So I, I switched about three or four years ago from doing on campus. I was working here locally at Vanderbilt. I switched to work with Dr. Rice Brooks from is uh, one of our co-founders of our ministry, and he authored the book, God's Not Dead. So I, where we would go to the campuses and actually do these live events where we'd present four lines of evidence for God based mm-hmm. on his book that got you know turned into a movie series. But mm-hmm. we would go do that. So we would have on average about 250 people show up for this. And these things would go three hours long, Q&A, lots of intrigue and whatnot. And it was amazing. But then the pandemic hit, obviously, we weren't able to do large gatherings. So in that kind of basic way, just like a church on Sunday, we couldn't gather in person. So we had to pivot to online outreaches. So I would say the biggest way it it shifted us was online. Now, coming out of it, we're starting to do in-person events again. But some places still have restrictions, masks, limited capacity, or people are still scared. So you're getting a reduced capacity of people showing up to the in-person events. So in that way, it's kind of... uh, it's, it's, it's changed it a little bit, but, but the people that are coming though, I find it's almost like, like the whole collapse in the middle, we were talking about the people we're getting are, are higher quality. I think we're getting people, like I said, we just did outreach a couple weeks ago, Michigan state, and, and we were praying for the nations to come and man, we got, uh, gosh, we got Ethiopia, Brazil, Spain, Kazakhstan, Malawi, like just international students were coming to the outreach to hear this evidence for God. And so these students come, they get saved, they get discipled, they'll go back to their nation, we'll spread the gospel to their nations by reaching these international students. So it's just such a, for me, it's such a strategic harvest field and a, and a, a great mission field and a great mission force to get these students saved and sent back out. Um, so I, that's that's where I've seen it start to change is real solid contacts. The students seem very open and hungry, the ones that have been isolated or been online classes or distance from people, it was just nice to be around people. And I think, I think like a lot of us too, not just students, but everybody in general, when the pandemic hit, if you were fortunate enough to have a job that you could work from home for a little bit, you had more time because you didn't lose commute time and there were no, there weren't as many sports on. And suddenly people find themselves with more free time than they had before. And so they were finally waking up to maybe some of the propaganda in the news and realizing, am I being lied to about this or about that? And of course, if they follow Bitcoin, it's like, what else am I being lied to about? I think people had more more time to just ask more existential questions mm-hmm. and search things at a deeper level. And so and that's, you know, for everything, politics, to finances, to the biblical truth. And so I think you just see that at large, it was like our culture is such a consumer culture. You just watch TV, watch sports, you're busy with work. And finally, everything shut down and people were concerned about, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. We're concerned about, you know, MAGA. We're concerned about all these different protests and counter protests going on everywhere that people were concerned more about justice and, and these issues. Do you think that's going to stick or do you think we're going to get back to our ways? Eventually, I think it goes back. Eventually, you go through cycles where you get, you know, you prosper, you're abundant, and you just kind of forget, and you get lazy, and you know. But I, but I, depending on how much pain there is in the near future, you know, with uh, these supply chain things, and uh, you know what the dollar does, it's hard to predict. If I if I knew that, I'd you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Addison, tell me about. Uh, so you know, I've never read uh, God Is Not Dead. I, I know it was turned into a movie, and I think the Newsboys did the the music for that, which I, I love. The Newsboys always have. But um, when when was that written? Was that in the the just at the turn of the last this past century, or when was that written? You know, I 
I'm trying to remember. I think it was either 2011 or 2013. I forget. The first, okay. The, okay. The original, the original one. Okay. Because there's been there's been three books now. There was Mammoth Messiah and the Human Right, and they're on their fourth movie. But the original idea, the original idea, just to give you a little backstory, was the Newsboys had the Newsboys. A couple of them go to our church, and they rolled into Dr. Brooks' neighborhood and played the song, and he helped them do the video with some of the atheist counter arguments and whatnot. And then he said, you need to have, uh, you know, more substance here. Let's, let's mm-hmm. really equip the students. So they said, well, why don't you write a book for us? So basically that was the idea is, okay, I'll, he'll write the book. So he wrote a book and um, then the, he was telling a friend of his uh, about what students go through on campuses, the opposition with the professors and whatnot. And he said, man, this needs to be a movie. So that guy personally went and, went to a movie company and said, Hey, you know, I think this needs to be a movie. I can deliver you the artist, the author of the book and personally fund the movie. And he put up the money and uh, funded the movie. And so that was kind of the role that he had in the movie was that whole, the evidence behind the scene with this professor and the student, then kind of Hollywood takes it over and they add all the other stuff into it. And then he kind of ran with it into a whole series going all kind of ways. But, but the idea was really that whole initial movie with the initial college scene with the student and the professor, was was the heart of what we do on campuses every day, equipping these students to defend their faith. That's fantastic. Um, Addison, tell tell us a little bit about your Bitcoin journey, and I, I want to weave this into, you know, this the apologetics. Are you? It, do you think there's a role for using Bitcoin for an apologetic story or segue, and? So tell us your story and, and give us your thoughts on that. Sure. Like a lot of people, uh, I heard about Bitcoin. You always have to hear about it a lot. It's kind of like the gospel, right? You hear about it a few times before you really respond. So I heard about it, obviously, when it came out. Um, didn't really understand it. You saw in the news, hey, criminals use it. Okay, turn off the news. And then I think the second big cycle that it had in 2017, it finally caught my eye. And I, I FOMO'd in just thinking, okay, well, I can't miss out on this. So, and I actually did the opposite of what most people did. My first foray into Bitcoin was through my uh, Roth IRA. So I wasn't doing just personal money. I was just, I was doing my retirement savings. So I put my retirement savings into Bitcoin in 2017, for the second half of that bull run without really understanding it. I just went in just to get the gains. And then it kind of, you know, went up, went down, went sideways. And I just sat on it and thought, okay, well, it's a long-term play. Anyway, it's retirement. I'll just wait. 2020 comes around and of course you have the pandemic and like I was saying earlier, I finally had time to settle down and a little bit more time to think. So I started reviewing my finances and looking at investments and you know how what, what things I need to move around. And when I took a second look at Bitcoin to try to really understand it, I realized that I had kind of fundamentally misunderstood the first time. I thought just a great company, great startup, great whatever, and not really realizing that it, the digitalness, the decentralization, the scarceness of it, and uh, and it, something began to fundamentally change my worldview. Of course, I was the only person thinking that way, so I didn't know who to really talk to about it until uh, I had told a friend that you recently had in your podcast, August. Uh, we worked together, and um, he picked it up right away, and then he shared some more articles and podcasts back with me that he discovered, and suddenly I had a Bitcoin buddy, and that kind of accelerated it. He and I just going back and forth. Have you read this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And we went back and forth, and then um, – I got the idea once I, well, I'll say it this way. So once I got to that point, I started thinking, 
where are the Christians in this space? Mm -hmm. And so I'm on social media. I hate social media, but I'm on it because in order to minister to students. So I have, I have every social media account you can have, have them all. I don't necessarily use them all the time. At that time I was using a lot more Instagram for the college students and uh, Facebook to communicate with partners. And I, my Twitter account was kind of dormant, but now I'm, I'm mostly on Twitter ever since then to get on Bitcoin Twitter. And I started looking for anybody I suspected being a Christian in Bitcoin. And uh, eventually I found uh, that book, thank God for Bitcoin. And then I, I got in a Bible study with those guys and went through that book and I flew out to meet them at their book launch and met a bunch of guys at Unchained Capital. And I was just trying to meet anybody and everybody I could, trying to understand it as fast as possible because I saw it as a real game changer and uh, once in a lifetime opportunity. And so uh, I did that and I thought, how do I get other people involved without coming across? Because again, I've been doing this for 26 years now. And I always get people saying, hey, do this product, MLM, conflict of interest, you know, weird stuff. And I just want to stay focused on the gospel. But at the same time, I see this as a real good tool. And for us as missionaries, we need to have savings. So why not promote this as a good savings technology for people? So I just started to do a giveaway. I started identifying 20 to 30 missionaries that I know and love and thought, I'm going to just give them some Bitcoin and, and just see what happens. So I started just giving Bitcoin to people. Uh, and then a few of them began to say, oh, thanks. And uh, some said, I don't want it. Most took it. And then a handful uh, would read the podcast or the articles, the books I sent them and then respond back. And now I've got a few more that have all gone in uh, at a lot deeper level and are starting Bible studies as well and teaching uh, teaching this the same way. So that was kind of my Bitcoin Bitcoin journey. What? So why were you getting the pushback? Why were some saying they don't want it? I think people just didn't understand it, but I, but I, I take the same approach I take with the gospel and with partnership. So, uh, you know, my, my goal is to just show the gospel to people. Okay. If they were, if they reject it, they reject it. They respond, they respond. That's who God's working with. Okay. They respond. I'm going to, I'm going to work with them. In the same way, if I share the gospel, somebody say, oh, I'm already a believer. Oh, great. Well, help me, partner with me to help other people hear the gospel. So it's just real simple the way I do it. So I took that same approach into Bitcoin. I said, let me tell you a little bit about Bitcoin. And if they didn't really want to hear it or really push back, no, I don't care about that stuff or I'm too lazy for it. Okay, well then, you know, that suits you. But I just, I don't want you to say you never heard about it. I don't yeah. want you to say, why didn't you tell me about this, you know, years later? And I said, this is your opportunity for me or my opportunity really to cleanse my own conscience so that you won't look back and say, man, I thought you loved me. I thought you were my friend. Why didn't you tell me about it? And I, and I read a tweet one time. I forget who, who it was. Um, and they said, if I've ever talked to you about Bitcoin, that's my way of saying I love you. Mm. I, thought that was, I thought that was a great little uh, a great little thing. But it's true because I was reaching out to people I cared about the most and thought, I want them to see it, but I can't make people see it in the same way the gospel. I can't make you see it, but I can be faithful to present it to you and in a kind and, and respectful way so that when the news comes up, it's hitting all-time highs again, and people say, hey, you still doing that Bitcoin thing? Then people start reaching out to me. And so I have people now reaching out to me, and I can send them articles and you know apps and things to use and places to go to get Bitcoin, um, you know, books to read to get, be educated on it. So you just got to sow the seeds. So, okay, but that, that's, that really sounds no different than – you know, what a, a non-believer, an unbeliever would do with Bitcoin. Uh, you know, they see a great technology where they're saving money. Do you think that there's um, a more Christian approach? And, you know, may, maybe you're doing it differently than that, but um, it sounds like that's pretty much 
the number go up technology approach. Do you, do you think that's appropriate for Christians? Should we approach it differently? And the reason I'm asking you this, Addison, is, you know, I, I think you, you know, you followed my stuff. I, I did this uh, Bitcoin for churches seminar and, and I've got that study guide. Um, the, and I, I have some remarkable data from the, from the seminar and it, and it, it, the way I approached it is I presented the, the, the corruption of the financial system as the first part of the, the seminar. Right. And then I followed it with Bitcoin and then closed it with the the redemption of, uh, of our economy with potentially Bitcoin. And it seems like if you point out the, the corruption, that seems to be more of a, not more, I shouldn't say that, but that seems to speak differently than just, hey, you should invest in this because it's going up. Does that make sense? Right, right, yeah, and 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 I don't know if I said that or not, or you just assumed that, but I, yeah, that's not the angle. I, I don't take the number go up technology. I take, that's a kind of a that's a side benefit in a sense. So the uh, it can be if you catch it in the right moment, if you catch yeah. it way down. So I, I I lead with the moral argument. That's what okay. I lead with. Okay. So All yeah, right. because the, the Bible calls for sound money. That's right. Yeah. So okay. you know when you read when you read books like R.C. Sproul Jr. book, Biblical Economics, or Dennis Peacock's book, Doing Business God's Way. I mean, I, I read these books and it's like sound money, sound money, sound money. And I see the Bible and I go, great, but it's just there's where is that? And then until Bitcoin comes along and you realize, wow, we actually finally have an opportunity to implement more of this biblical sound money uh, option. So that that is the angle I take with it. And then I tell them that a corollary of that is, hey, you know, as it's being monetized and man, you can achieve great wealth with this. And who better to have that wealth than Christians who are going to be generous and supply the needs of themselves and others. Absolutely. You know, so that 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 is the angle. yeah, that I take with it is that is the I leave with the moral argument. Because think about it like this, Patrick, it's like the gospel. Again, I'm relating all back to the gospel. If you just tell somebody Jesus died for your sins, they're like, okay, whatever, whatever that means. Who, who the heck is Jesus and what is what are sins and what does that mean? It, without the context, it, it has no meaning. So I think it was John Wesley that talked about he would preach 90% law, 10% grace. So you have to see where you've fallen short, how you violated the law to understand, like, you know, 90 minutes, you know, 90% later after the the law talk, you go, oh my gosh, what what must I do to be saved? I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I need help. I need a savior. So you, when you preach, you know, uh, your sinfulness, the fallenness of man and, and Christ's lordship, then you begin to see a gap. And so let, let me put it to you this way. Matthew 13, 44 talks about the parable of the, uh, the um, treasure in the field, right? The guy sees the treasure and he buries it. And, and it says in all his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to go back and buy that field. So all of life is a value exchange. The Bitcoiners will love this. All of life is a value exchange. I am not going to give $1,000 for this iPhone unless I sense that that is of greater value than my Mm $1,000. Or I wouldn't do it. You say, hey, it's $500. Oh, I'll give it to you right now. It's $2,000. I'll wait for the price to come down. I'll get a better deal. So that's the way it is. So if you see your life right here, you know, I'm kind of, you're just listening to podcasts, but imagine my hands are at the same level. I'm a pretty good person right? Jesus seems like a pretty good teacher. We're kind of equal. I don't really see what am I giving up? You know, why, why give up my life or his life? It's kind of the same thing. I mean, we're mm-hmm. both good people. I help old ladies across the street. I'm a boy scout. But if you realize, hey, I'm sinful, I'm fallen. So you kind of lower your hand down. I have need of a savior. Man, he's holy. He's other than he's righteous. He's just, he's the creator of the universe. You begin to see this gap grow uh, of now the exchange life. Oh, that's a good deal. 
to get his righteousness for my sinfulness. So when you're preaching to people, people have to see themselves in their, in their true self because they always have an elevated view themselves yeah. and they see Christ diminished. They have to see Christ elevated in order to get that gap going. So in the same way, Bitcoin, like how you like all these segues I'm using. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> in the same way, Bitcoin, you, you have to, if you say, here's a dollar, here's Bitcoin. Okay. Well, why do I want to exchange a dollar for Bitcoin? Well, now the price is going up. Oh, that doesn't seem like a good deal. Right. They just see the price. Oh, now it's more expensive. I don't want, I'll wait till it comes down. I'll wait till it comes down. It's too high for me because they don't understand how trash the dollar is. There's nothing backing it. They don't understand immorality, the brokenness. So you have to start with the broken financial system today. They have to see it as broken. And then they go, oh my gosh, this is terrible. What's the answer? Is there a solution? And then you say, well, there's this thing called Bitcoin. What's that? And they go, wow, this is amazing. My problem was years ago, like a lot of people, you know, I would read these books on the Fed and gold and you become a gold bug, but it, realistically, you knew that wasn't going to happen. It already it broke for a reason. Even gold broke for a reason. That was the hardest money we had, you know, until recently. And so it was kind of it was kind of hopeless. But I think once once Bitcoin comes along, now you say, here's the hardest money ever created, and history always flows towards the hardest money. And you can see where the puck is going, and go, man, I need to get over there to where all the monetary value is going, and I can be positioned right. It's like a church that says, I'm going to buy this land across from the campus, and as this city grows and this campus goes, we got the land right there across the street and we can be the place that students come to get ministry but if we wait and now it's too expensive to get in so you have to kind of see and know that the city's being built you know neighborhoods are going up and, and get that land and put that church so you're going to be right there to minister to those people in the same way get your financial digital real estate be positioned so when everybody wants that that real estate you're in a position now like uh you know like like um Joseph. Joseph, yeah. Seven seven years of saving up. And then yeah. when the famine came, he had the resources then to be a blessing to the nations. The nations were streaming to him. Even the very people who rejected him and hurt him, he's able to be a blessing to them. And so we've got to be able to stack sats uh, for, for those kinds of moments, not for not for storing silos in ourselves and our lives will be demanded of it, Jesus says, but no, but storing it in a wisdom and a stewardship to prepare for the future because we have low time preference. We have an eternal view and we're building for the future. The problem with so many Christians is they're just thinking, Hey, Jesus, come back tomorrow and I'm going to put on my wings. I'm going to fly away. So let's run up the credit cards and uh, live party and drink for tomorrow. We die. Yeah. And we're not thinking, Hey, this earth is a training ground for all of eternity. And the way we steward our resources, and the way we live now is preparing our character for the new heaven and the new earth. And so I think we have this kind of flyaway mentality. We're not looking to like, how do we bring heaven on earth today? That kingdom coming that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So heaven doesn't have sick people. Heaven doesn't have those things. Earth is where the problems are. Earth is where we're trying to practice and and train to be, to rule as co-heirs with Christ. So this this is where we get practice. There's an old hymn, I'll fly away. So maybe where that's (laughs) that's where that comes from. I never did like that song. Uh, So uh, you, I, there's a couple of strings I want to pull on here because I see a, a clear gospel presentation in your analogy with Bitcoin. And so I think that's phenomenal. So that would be for the unbeliever. And then the the mindset change that this could be for the believer, because I, I believe like you that the believer has been corrupted with a fiat mindset. So speak to how you think Bitcoin could be used or if you think it could be used in ministry um for outreach and then how do you think it could be used in discipleship for believers 
Okay, so yeah, a couple ways. I, I would I would say one of the things I recognized early on was that when you when you look at there's a thing in engineering where they try to engineer the the uh, devices to do certain things and they just can't figure it out and they realize that there's already something that works better and it's called the human body so they have this thing called biomimicking you know where they just try to go ahead and mimic the way our joints are set up the way our movements are done and it seems to be the easiest way to make a machine so biomimicking so in the same way as if god's the ultimate designer ultimate creator and he knows the best way to design something then when you're mimicking his design right? You're going to find the most efficient results. So I, I see that I, I see that with Bitcoin, that Bitcoin mimics the attributes and character of God, which is one of the reasons I, I feel like it makes it a more moral money. You know, when you, when you look at one of the nature and characteristics of God is his transcendence. God is transcendent, right? Well, one of the appeals of Bitcoin is that it's neutral, apolitical nature. It doesn't belong to any nation or person. And in a sense, it's above the current nation state, central bank monetary system. So it has a certain level of transcendence that, you know, mimics like God's transcendence to where I don't have to uphold my nation's laws if my nation's laws tell me to kill Jews, right? That's why with the Nuremberg trials, we said you should have followed a higher law. Right. There's something beyond uh, our own political system. Uh, secondly, I see that just as God is immutable, God is unchanging. Right. And so we, we look at theologically, what does the immutability of God his unchanging nature do? It gives us confidence. We can approach the throne room of grace that he's not going to change his mind tomorrow. Go, oh, you're in, you're not in. I change how salvation works. We can stand on his promises. So when we have a, a unchanging ledger, we have a, a Bitcoin fix at its monetary supply, 21 million coins, right? This fixed amount gives us confidence that our money is not going to be inflated or manipulated. Therefore, we're able to predict its value and where it's going and plan for our future. And when we have a fixed supply, we have a more stable currency, you get stuff like what happened in the Gilded Age, what happened in the in the Renaissance, where now you can give yourselves to greater works of art and culture and science uh, and, and great cathedrals, uh, works of beauty. You know, I see uh, God, is, God is sovereign, right? God rules over uh, all things. Well, Bitcoin gives us sovereignty over our own money, right? So my problems are my problems, not the government's problems passed on to me. So if I lose my Bitcoin, then I lost it, right? But see, if the government turns around and loses money, they go, oh, well, we're going to have to inflate the money to make up for the money. We just lost $85 billion of equipment in Afghanistan. We lost $21 trillion in accounting. I don't know where it went. So it just gets passed on to us to absorb all the mismanagement and mistakes, whereas here we become sovereign for our own, our own decisions. We see God is just, right? He's honest. Bitcoin is honest money, not manipulated or inflated. Everyone has equal access. It's uh, non-sensorial. We see that God is long-suffering. Uh, again, Bitcoin I see is very patient as, as it achieves its network effects and entrenches itself uh, to finally achieve its in-game in despite its seemingly volatility. So I think that that Bitcoin encourages prudence to, to make wise decisions about what you're going to purchase and to hold on and, and create patience. Uh, God is kind in the same way. I mean, look at look at Satoshi, how he created uh, Bitcoin. It wasn't he didn't create it in a way where he could quote take credit for it. It was just this kind gift to the world, uh, means to help individuals be free from nation state fiat currency that is unfair, unkind, and unjust. So I see I see those ways of how it mimics again for Christians to see an argument of why to do it, but also helping non-Christians see those characteristics and say, you realize why you like Bitcoin so much is because it mimics God. And I help them bridge that gap to see, 
Because what you really want is you want something to be transcendent. You want something to be unchanging. You want something to be sovereign and just and long-serving and kind. Basically, what you want is God. And then people that don't see God, they're going to ultimately make Bitcoin their God. And it's like, Bitcoin is God. You're going to start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Yep. And so we have to help them to to, to see that. And um, so this this happens for me a lot in one-on-one conversations. So I just use it one-on-one. But I, I did write down some notes um, here on how I think Bitcoin points people to God. Uh, one is that, you know, atheists typically have a materialistic worldview, which denies the metaphysical world. And, of course, when you deny the metaphysical reality, it causes many things to not make sense. Uh, you can, you, if you've ever read the book of Secular Age by Charles Taylor, uh, famous, famous work, it's like I don't know, 900 pages, really thick work. But he talks about that kind of supernova of they reject the unseen immaterial world. And it causes this weirdness to come out with how they have this spiritualness, but not yeah. Christianity. Um, so here, Bitcoin takes people to a metaphysical world as a money that doesn't have physical form. It exists in this abstract ledger called a blockchain in a very real way. So materialists have to resolve this existence that's non-physical, which for them produces some tension in their worldview. So that's one way that it begins to like point them in that direction. Another way is that the hard money lowers your time preference. There's excellent chapters in the Bitcoin Standard and that book, How Democracy Died, uh, on time preference uh, and just how it... You know, when it gets lowered, it makes you think more about the future, about getting married, raising kids, passing on your values, leaving a legacy. And all this gets people thinking about uh, Christianity as a value system and a logical foundation for its values that atheism doesn't have and, and can't uh, can't justify. That's why a lot of times you'll see Christian financial planners, because they make people think about, well, what's the purpose of your life? What do you want to plan for? And then that's a segue into the gospel. In the same way, Bitcoin starts people thinking that way. And, and cause that to come up. And then thirdly, uh, the idea that all truth is God's truth. You know, Bitcoin's little t truth points to God's big t truth. When you learn about truth in any form, I believe that points you to God. And we've been lied to lied to about money by a lot of people, been lied about how it works, its effects, how moral it is. And once you learn about Bitcoin, realize how you've been lied to about money, you begin to wonder what else you've been lied to about. So you start looking into your diet and the health, into the afterlife and the metaphysics and the Christianity. And so you, you know, you begin to go into that. So I just think there's a lot of, um, and I haven't even scratched the surface on, I think a lot of these parallels, uh, you know, just how Bitcoin honors the dignity of human labor, how it brings justice to the poor, how it incentivizes virtuous living. I mean, I've just been making tons of notes as I just do my own reading. I write down verses and questions, uh, of these of these parallels that I see, because it's fun to be thinking about it, uh, because it's my own personal retirement and savings, and it's fun because then I can help other missionaries have a, have a retirement savings, and then I can also give a practical need for people out there because everybody, whether you're saved or unsaved, you want to retire and have need and provide for yourself. So here's a way to meet a practical need for people and then segue it into the gospel because they see how you've, you've given them food or water. In this case, you've given them savings technology, and then you make those parallels into, uh, into the scripture. So speaking of that, uh, do you think that, Bitcoin could be used on the mission field, not not just for missionaries, but used on the mission field. Yeah, and here and here's why. So again, I'm a big believer in the Great Commission: go make disciples of all nations. So I believe there's a call for Christians to go and disciple nations. And part of discipling nations is Jesus said to go teach them everything I've commanded you. 
right? So we're supposed to teach him what he taught us, love God, love others, and a myriad of other things in there. But one of the big one of the big things I see in scripture, and I'll give a shout out again to this book called Doing Good Business God's Way by Dennis Peacock. Uh, he does a good job. He was a former Marxist turned Christian. Uh, but he talks again about how uh, property rights, you know, God is the creator of private property. So in this Marxist theology of like owning nothing and private property is theft, but the, the Christian worldview is no, no, private property is, is given by God. So in, you know, in the Ten Commandments, when he talks about don't steal, right, do not steal, inherent in that law to not steal means that you can be taking something of someone else's property, that they have property rights. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or donkey or house, right? So they can have something that they own that you don't own. And um, and I think my, my friend August pointed in your last podcast, too, about how that, that whole passage there starts with, uh, I am the Lord your God who led you out of slavery. So he leads him out of slavery and then gives him commandments, right? In other words, these commandments are like, you follow these commandments, you stay out of slavery. So you don't steal, you stay out of slavery. And yet, what is inflation? Yeah. Inflation is is theft, as uh, Gary North's book, uh, Christian Economics One Le- Lesson. The whole thing is, you shall not steal. And then he gives 24 ways that, you know, the government steals and why inflation is so insidious and ungodly uh, in, in the way it's structured. So, I say that again, go back to missions, because when you're teaching everything God's created, has, God has taught us, God teaches us that we are to have personal property, we are to have those rights, and that by stewarding the things that God has, because God owns everything, and then we're stewards of those things. So if personal property is wrong, well, then God's the biggest violator of it because he owns everything. But he gives them to us then to steward. And so by us stewarding people and things, that's how we produce maturity. So you don't get mature people when you live in government housing or when you rent all the time or when you never own anything. Like when you have to take responsibility and have a family, have kids, have a business, own your own home. And and there's nothing more simple today to own than Bitcoin because you you can buy one set, a fraction of a penny anywhere in the world, get a cell phone. Right. And you can you can begin to have personal property that's uncensorable. Right. That's unconfiscatable that people can begin to like, and suddenly this, this maturity begins to come on them as they go, how do I secure my own keys? How do I steward now this, this resource that I'm seeing is going up? How do I, you know, how do I do that? So for that alone, I think that's a great missions thing. But then also there's the idea of what you see happening in Bitcoin beach and then uh, now Lake Bitcoin, which are you connected to that? Lake yep, Bitcoin? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So trying to create that circular economy, you know, if you read books like, uh, there's like discipling the nations. Uh, there's another book called, I think it's, um, what is it called? Poverty of Nations, Wayne Wayne Grudem book. Um, but it talks about if you want to help a nation, the only way you have to help them, no matter what all you give them, you have to teach them to be productive. So you have people have to have uh, productivity, have to be able to produce capital and have human justice, which is like in this book here, he talks about the two main things you disciple nations is producing capital and human justice. And I go, Bitcoin delivers both at the same yeah, time. That, that's fantastic. Which is, which is incredible. It's, it's almost like all the things I've read in the past are just kind of coming together in Bitcoin. And, and it's not, I mean, it could be called something else coin, but it's yeah. Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the one that solved. That was the one that that finally finally made this sound money possible. And so the idea is that it's sound money. And of course, for us today, Bitcoin is the soundest money. Well, I mean, so you're you're making really compelling arguments. And then the other thing I would say, obviously, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, so 
the, the, one of the frustrating things for me, I mean, you're a professional missionary, but I've been on the mission field um, on short-term trips. And one of the frustrating things for me is, you know, we go and do these good works, which are all great, but um, then we leave and they don't have, we, we can't leave behind money because you don't want to create dependence. And I think for with Bitcoin, we have the ability to potentially give them something that is not dependent upon us. We introduced mm-hmm. it to them even in a small way. And um, I think with August, I was talking about, but I know I've talked about it on my previous podcast, but, you know, potentially going and drilling the wells, building the churches, but maybe we take Bitcoin miners and mm-hmm. capture stranded energy and, that that becomes the new building project, you know, that we give them and then they could build out electrical infrastructure that they may have never had before. So I, I look at it as a really phenomenal opportunity to really maybe not energize, but I, I just see that as a powerful ministry opportunity, mission opportunity. Oh, yeah. I, no, I'm with you 100 percent. I mean, imagine imagine bringing a miner into a village and they have a way to capture with their hydrologic power or volcano power or whatever they need to heat up their water. And so you plug in that to heat the water and they're monetizing. So it pays for itself and then also produces the Bitcoin that then they can store the value over time and becomes, you know, however they want to use it. But teaching them to be self-sufficient in a sense, uh, what Dennis Pigott calls economic evangelism, you know, so it's it's. Yeah, helping helping people in a practical need, which I always love. Like people tend to go one side or the other. You know, it's like they do all the social justice stuff and leave out the gospel. They give the gospel, don't help the needs. So, you know, I, I believe in, in doing both at the same time. And uh, so so I will say this. I believe that all change starts from the inside out. It starts from the individuals and the human heart. So laws are just a reflection of the of the aggregate of all the human hearts of the nation. You know, you can, you can outlaw something in the books, but if it's not, if they're not going to enforce the law, then it's really no good. You have to change people's hearts individually. That's what the gospel is the most powerful uh, human right. You know, the, 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 everybody should have the right to hear the truth, hear the gospel as public declared truth. And um, so that's where it starts. And then you give them the practical application of that. What does, what does it look like to be a believer? How should that, that affect the way you steward your finances, the way you run your business, the way you lead your family? There has to be a, a connection there. Uh, and that's, what I, that's why I've always been attracted to apologetics and worldview. I just love the idea of the rubber hitting the road. What does it look like to really, really live uh, lived the faith. I remember in college, a friend of mine, he got saved and he went to his boss and his boss was a believer. And he thought his boss would be excited to hear that he got saved because this guy was kind of, um, kind of flippant and he got saved. He goes, hey, guess what? I got saved this summer. After everything you said to me, I went home and I got saved. And he goes, great. Let's see if that changes your work ethic. And he was like, whoa. <laughs> and he's, you know, just like, you can tell me you're saved all, all you want, but are you going to show up to work on time? Are you going to be a good worker? How, how will that affect you? And the, the guy, that, the same guy that discipled me told me, look, are, you, are your grades going to improve? You know, are you, are you going to be a, a better example, better, a better person in the world that people want to look to? And so I just think that it should affect you. If I'm a Christian, I should be a better husband because of it. I should be a better father. I should be a better businessman. I should be a better missionary. I should be better stewarding my finances because of it. You know, because if I accepted a Christianity that doesn't change me, then I, to me, I've got a false Christianity. But, but it does all start with getting the gospel and I individually to people, but I love then teaching those people how to meet those practical needs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way I, I've been doing some writing here in the last couple of days and the way I've kind of th- thinking about it is, you know, Bitcoin 
provides kind of a fix for the broken physical world. Uh, it's not a physical object, obviously, but it, it's it's going to fix a lot of brokenness in the physical world. But that's just one truth. I mean, I think to complete the picture, obviously, we need the truth of the soul, and that's Jesus. Um, do, okay, so I, I, I want to keep pulling on that a little bit. So do you think there would be a role for taking a Bitcoin presentation to a church in, I don't know, Guatemala, uh, educating the believers in the church about Bitcoin and, and how it can help transform their lives and their savings and all that, but also using that as an outreach to the community. It's like, hey, we're going to be given this conference on Bitcoin. You weave in the gospel as you're teaching the course. Do you think that's a viable idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's absolutely. I mean, that's how like we go on campuses. We give the evidence for God, science and history and philosophy, and then we weave it into the final push of the decision of are you going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. So in the same way, if you're given, if you're giving the evidence for hard money and all this, and you're going to weave in the gospel, you're hoping then that people lead into lean into, you know, trusting in Jesus and saving a Bitcoin. And so, you know, then Bitcoin kind of becomes a hook. If they don't want to hear about Jesus, but they want to hear about Bitcoin, they might come to this thing and go, man, this Bitcoin thing's amazing. And then you're going to pivot at some point in your presentation to then uh, the gospel and its relationship to that. And they're going to get a two for one. They're going to go, man, I got saved. Then I started saving in Bitcoin. I mean, everything about God has been amazing since I met him, you know? And so and- I, and I guess, quite frankly, if they if they come and they hear about Bitcoin and they don't want to do anything with Jesus, you're you've still performed a, an awesome service for these people that need to hear about this hard money. Right. Because it's still helping them to free, you know, dignify their human labor and help them to save for the future and take them out of a corrupt system and incentivizing virtuous living. So there's still so many. It's just like even if they don't want to be a Christian, but we put a law on the books that says we're going to give a tax break if you're married. Well, they may not ever get saved, but gosh, if people stay married, what's that going to do for society, keeping kids in a two-family household mm-hmm. and helping them to stay off drugs and stay in school? So there's still all these ancillary benefits that you're going to get just by following God's ways. So again, everybody benefits when you follow God's ways. And, and, and guess what? Even if you're a Christian— Everybody suffers when you don't follow God's ways. So even for a Christian, and we're not following God's ways, we say, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to take on massive debt, or I'm going to do this or that. It's still, we're in this kind of moral hazard where we're trying to live in this world, and yet in order to get a car and a house and fund a church building, all these things, you find yourselves, it's just, it's the better way mathematically is to take all this cheap debt and just do what everybody's doing to get rich. And so that's what just becomes so insidious about it is it literally is incentivizing us to do things that are unwise and sinful, you know, until you feel this, this dilemma mm-hmm. in the soul of I should live this way by principle, but doggone it, I'm never going to retire. Or, well, maybe I should just get this house and flip this and take this loan. And you just start wanting to do all this. And of course you can get caught up like in 2008 and suddenly you lose 10 homes in a row. Uh it's just hard to, to leverage like that. The game that people play, it's hard to not see the wicked prosper and not want that as a, as a Psalm say, but what better way to introduce a system where now we can actually save and do it right and have a good conscience and live on principles. Uh, I think everything about it is just amazing. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. That That's awesome. Um, Addison, what, what do you think about, um, do you think that, we are at the end of man's reason in the age that we're in right now. The end of man's reason. Yeah. 
So, you know, if you look at, if you look at, you know, the age of enlightenment and um, the age of reason, you know, the 17, 1800s and Darwinism and, and materialism, you know, atheism that we were just talking about, it, it seems to me that we're, we're kind of seeing that on full display right now. And there, there's been no, man's philosophies have not provided the adequate basis for life and truth. And it, it seems that it's just, that's kind of where we're at. I, I just don't see that there's going to be a way out of this that that man's going to be able to come up with something. And and I say this thinking about the World Economic Forum and the, and the Great Reset and thinking that really what they're proposing is really nothing new. They want to make it sound like it's new, but it's really nothing new. So can we put lipstick on a pig? And if we can, how long can we do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely historically at a period of what I would say man's reason, because we've seen what we thought science would get us and yeah. knowledge would get us. And then we realized, okay, that didn't get us anything with the, the height of man's knowledge and rejection of God in the 20th century. got us fiat money and massive wars and communist thinking and tens of millions of people dead. And, you know, but that wasn't real communism. Uh, <laughs> they say, right. Um, so you kind of see where it leads. And I think that was what a secular age book by Charles Taylor was about. It was like, they, they kind of see the end of it and they've, re, they've rejected this part de facto, just that we just reject that part. And we look only at the material world and then we're left without answers. So we start coming up with these weird answers and trying to the supernova of weirdness. And uh, so he talks about, you know, how we can bridge, bridge that gap. But I, I think there's definitely something to that, but there's, I'm always amazed at how there's no end to man's inventiveness to scripture says to invent evil, to put the lipstick on the pig and to keep things going. Because when we want to reject God, we just continue to reframe, remarket, redo whatever we can to kind of keep the same old song and dance going. I mean, it, it is a bit like holding a beach ball underwater, you know, just mm -hmm. trying to hold it. It just wants to, as soon as you lose your grip, things will pop right up. It want, the truth wants to come back up, but we do what we can to suppress the truth or unrighteousness. Um, but it does seem like in terms of schooling, you know, because Christians started schooling and then you go through all the public education system. And again, people are starting to homeschool in record numbers now. Um, you, you see uh, politics, uh, you know, where things have gone, science, people are pushing back finally now on the, you know, evolution and, and just the, the timing, the timeline and the space we have to actually do this is just not enough for this to even happen mathematically. And so people are starting to realize, well, maybe that doesn't answer. We thought this would be a way to escape God. But gosh, it seems like we still keep coming back to uh, Stephen Meyer and his latest book calls it the return of the God hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Everything keeps pointing back towards the more we know, we thought we would escape from God. Instead, the more we know, the more it's pointing to God being real. And uh, yeah. So do you, I mean, obviously, do you see opportunity in this? Oh, I see tremendous opportunity. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Tremendous, tremendous opportunity. That's why I'm, that's why I'm laboring with all my might to, you know, to win these students to the Lord on college campuses and train other people how to do evangelism. And, uh, you know, and that's why, yeah, that's why I'm excited about Bitcoin because I'm trying to start my own little Bitcoin foundation and put Bitcoin in and eventually do a perpetual uh, funding of missions for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that's trying fantastic. to think long term. Yeah, that's what I, that's what my, my long term goal has been to do that my whole life, missionary life. And I finally now feel like I could I could probably do this here in the next year. I can start it, seed a Bitcoin in myself and then try to raise some other Bitcoins and and uh, set up set up that fund to do that so that we can constantly have mission work taking place, but there's, there's always tremendous opportunity. I mean, 
2000 years ago, Jesus said, look up the fields are, you know, white for harvest. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's never changed. There's always people, new people being born. And, and uh, so even when you think you've done the whole work, it only takes a generation to lose it all. That's right. It doesn't get passed on. So that's why I'm constantly trying to pass it on to the next generation, pass that baton of faith on, you know? Do you think that there's been, okay, so if we've dropped out the middle in churches, do you think we've dropped out the middle in missionaries? Do you think there's been an attrition, a good attrition in missionaries? Maybe that's a sec, maybe that's a bad thing to say, but uh, you know, not everybody out on the mission field is doing the Lord's work. Oh uh, yeah. That's kind of funny. Now that I think about it because you're, it's, it's almost like you're speaking to the idea of the fiat economy and how it, it has a misallocation of resources and, you can you can also get that in the Christian sphere where you have maybe people in ministry don't need to be in ministry they can be in ministry because of how mm-hmm. things are structured and uh, yeah I mean that's probably what happens in churches too where because the the your high that's high cotton times you can pay for and do a lot of things that you don't necessarily need to do but hey we got the money let's just do it and then when you have to do budget cuts you start going okay wait a minute what is really essential. And what we really need is this, this, and this. Whereas other times we say, I need a smoke machine. I need, you know, whatever candy machine. I need free yeah. candy for kids. And you start realizing, I don't need to do an iPod giveaway every kid's church. I don't need to do, you know, things that maybe get a little frivolous. Uh, you get focused back onto the basics of just reading the word, praying and singing, making disciples, and uh, God building this, in this church. But, it, you know, again, when you're in such a Christianized culture, you start having fights over the color of the carpet, you know, and how big is your parking lot? Who's got a better kids' church? And it becomes this consumerism. Whereas when you're in a persecuted country, like, you know, when you've done mission work, people aren't thinking about that. They're just yeah. about making disciples and gathering disciples in their home, like the early church. And then it can grow from that. And then it can be a blessing that you're free to worship and meet. You can get a building, but you go too far down that train. And then it just, it begins to get so big that now you're doing stuff you don't need to do. And so sometimes a little bit of a pullback and God's faithful to do that. Like when the early yeah. church in Jerusalem, remember they were supposed to go out and they didn't. And so God and his love and, and sovereignty and wisdom he caused the persecution to scatter the church so they would spread the gospel because they weren't going out. Whereas in Antioch, they were already doing that. They were already a mission-minded church going, so they didn't have that problem, but Jerusalem did. So as long as we keep doing what we're supposed to be doing, being a blessing, being a conduit for God's blessing, you know, serving the nations, I think God can God can bless us and bless our work. But as soon as we get, you know, selfish or it's about building my little church or my ministry, my kingdom, you know, then God will be faithful to kind of shake that up because, you know, ultimately, you know, I used to tell this to athletes all the time, get injured. And James talks about uh, God is concerned with our faith, you know, more than silver or gold is concerned with our faith. Yeah. So he'll allow you to, you know, bust your ACL, right? Break a leg. If that's what it takes for you to, to focus on him and stop focusing on your career or what you think you're going to do and who you are as the man in his love and forbearance, he will do that because what's most important is, is your heart right towards him. And so that can be a financial shakedown for many people. If you put, if you've made finances, your idol and suddenly a financial, you know, shaking comes, you go, Whoa, is it, I'm disturbed by this. Well, why? Because I was trusting in my wealth. So, you know, we have to think the same way that I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus, not trusting in, uh, you know, sound money or whatnot. I want to save is the best way to do it, but my trust isn't ultimately in the number go up or whatnot. I, I want a fair system and that's why I believe in it. And the number go up is can, can be a side benefit. I mean, I believe serving God, there's benefits. I believe you can be healthy and, uh, and prosper, but at the same time, Paul said, Hey, I know what it is to be in plenty and in want. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, Paul was following God, and yet sometimes, man, he had walked into king's palaces. He was good. Sometimes he said he had no clothes to wear, no food to eat. Mm-hmm. He was stoned to death and left for dead. And so can I be content in both circumstances and realize that he gives and takes away? And sometimes we think it's just one or the other. I have to be a pauper. I have to be poor. God wants me to live in this trailer forever. And that's what a missionary is. No, no, I'm a missionary. I deserve to have my own private plane. I deserve to. And it's like we can vacillate between these extremes and say, no, no, it's all about the mission. And I can live on little, I can live on much, but obviously I, I, I'd like to raise more money to be able to do more and, and do, do more mission work. But that's not going to limit me from doing what God's called me to do. I can just always do where I am with what I have. I can do what I can. Well, I guess a corollary to that question is, you know, if we get to the point of hyper-Bitcoinization and, you know, you're able to have your perpetual missions and churches are able to have their perpetual church programs and they never have to raise money again, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Be both. Depends on how you structure it, because I have thought a lot about this, because obviously when I when I think about it, because I've always wanted to um, how to say this, like there's something in me that's always wanted to be self-funded. You know, and maybe that's pride the way I'm wired. Um, but God has always caused me to humble myself and begin to find other people to partner with me to do it. And what I realized is the blessing it is to those people to be able to partner with me to share in the eternal fruit being root for God's glory on the, on the college campus. As Paul said in Philippians, this is for, this gets credited to their account. It's to their benefit. So I, I have to stop thinking it's about me. So I realized even if I had all the money in the world to do missions, I would still go and ask people to partner what I'm doing because I want them to get the blessing of partnering what we're doing for mission work. And even if I had a, a foundation, which is, is my goal to do, to where I could have that money be able to do missions, I think you still have to require people to have skin in the game. So whether that is, hey, you raise half your support and this will give you 50% of your support and you go, wow, or you raise your support and this will pay travel expenses or you know capital expenditures for big projects and at least you can take care of your basic necessities whatever it is because you have to give people some kind of incentive and skin in the game uh way to do that so yeah you'd have to structure in a way that still doesn't rob people of the ability to uh you know be motivated and labor with all that they have yeah great great thoughts um Addison, do you have, uh, as we kind of bring this to a close, I mean, this has been a really fantastic discussion. Uh, do you have any kind of closing thoughts? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave your contact information, your Twitter in the in the show notes. And then if you could also provide like a lightning address, I like to, for my missionaries and, and pastors, I like to leave a lightning address so that if people want to donate to you, they can do that. So if you could pass that on to me, but do you have any other closing thoughts or things you want to mention here? Uh, I'll just say that um, I believe that uh, Bitcoin, like it is a a gift from God and um, I receive it as such. It's amazing technology. It's not something I worship. I worship God, but I'm excited about it because it allows us to live the way the Bible describes in Mm -hmm. terms of just sound money. And it, it provides equity and things for, for all people. And so if you're concerned with, with, with human justice and these things, because God is concerned with those things, then you want them to be able to have the savings technology to be able to build society uh, on a fair standard. Um, that being said, the ultimate human right, the ultimate thing that drives me is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that every person should have the opportunity to hear the publicly declared truth of who Jesus is, and it will radically change their life. And so as great as Bitcoin is, um, if you don't have Jesus, what, what good is it? 
you know, probably man to gain the whole world, lose a soul. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but, but how good it is to have Jesus and have your savings in Bitcoin, you know, yeah. <laughs> Double <Amen. blessings>. so, <laughs> so that's where I just feel, man, I feel overly blessed. And that's why I, I want to tell people about it. So, um, yeah, I'd love to connect with anybody. would love to hear more about the, my ministry, what we're doing. You know, if they check my website and uh, reach out to me on Twitter or whatnot, that's where I'm mostly are these days because uh following all the uh, Bitcoiners out there, staying abreast of the information. And I appreciate your work, uh, Patrick, uh, what you're doing. Like I said, I've been hungry for content like this. So that's why uh, I found you on um on Twitter and find your podcast. I love the, uh, I love, I, I'm up with that other guy, uh, Simon with the Bible and Bitcoin podcast, mm-hmm. other podcast too. I love yeah. what you guys are doing. It's um, yeah, it's appreciate. I, I, and I went to your, your course, the Bitcoin for churches. Um, I, I thought it was excellent. Uh, oh, were you, were you in attendance? Yeah, I attended it and I recommended several of my friends' churches to go to it as well. Okay. So I've been trying to Orangeville several churches. And so I said, Hey, go, this was nice because it wasn't me. You know, how it is like a parent, like here's somebody else talking about it. So I was like, well, here's Dr. Melder talking about this. And so able to push him your way. And uh, now I'll be able to say, Hey, I know him personally as a friend and uh, refer your course more and more. So it all, it all helps, you know, whatever you can do to, you know, help people move along the trajectory. Awesome. All right, Addison, we're going to sign off here. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it, Pat. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace.